New on CuriosityStream, uncover engineering secrets from history's greatest masters. From the mysteries of the first man-made waterways to the building techniques of the early Americas, it's ancient engineering. Plus, 40 tons of trucks speeding down the interstate can be a recipe for disaster. See how today's smarter new age big rigs pave the way for safer highways on high-tech trucks. Watch now on CuriosityStream. Annual plans are $20, just $1.67 a month. Visit CuriosityStream.com. Hello? You're still playing that game? Oh, man, it looks like you're in a game daze. Yeah, I- I'm getting you Blocks blue light glasses from Zenny. Okay, okay, I'm pausing it. Um, what are Blocks? Well, Blocks glasses help protect your eyes against blue light from digital devices. Sounds like Blocks will let me play longer. Ugh. Add Blocks to any Zenny frame for stylish all-day protection from harmful blue light. Get a complete pair of prescription Blocks glasses starting at just $24. And get back to gaming. Zenny.com. Eyewear for everyone. Hello there, welcome to another episode of This Week in History with me, your host, Dan the Viking. First things first, a little bit of housekeeping. Hello, Youssef, and welcome to my Patreon. Thank you very much for joining another one of you guys who is paying a little bit more than what you actually need to to get the Patreon episodes. Not that I'm complaining, I really, really appreciate every extra dollar that you can afford to put in just shows how much you really, really appreciate this show. So thank you very, very much. It does mean a lot to me. I say it every week, but Patreon, guys, is what keeps me going. If you are interested in Patreon, you get access to extra episodes, and you will also get access to these shows without adverts. Now, that's a bargain for $5 a month, if I do say so myself. Anyway... We'll get on with the episode. So, for those of you who are on the Facebook group, facebook.com forward slash this week in history group, you will find us on there. This episode is in regards to Israel and Palestine. Okay, bit of a conflict there. I can hear you all going, ooh, not sure about this one. Yep, it's a very, very intriguing episode. There is a lot of information to get out. This episode, however, will not be focused on religion okay i know that's very very difficult to do with this but i will not be covering the religion the religious areas of jerusalem and things like that that's not part of this episode this episode is purely on how israel and palestine was formed and how the conflict initially started now for this episode we have to go back to world war one Okay, now World War One was a very interesting war. Okay, because it was in the war, it's known as the Great War, but it was the war of, I would say, industrial revolution as well. Okay, and the reason I say that is because this was the first time that real high-powered artillery was used, um, when real battleships were used, real tanks were used, um, air warfare for the first time. This was a real bloody war and it was bloody because of the industrial revolution and because of the advancements in weapons and weapon making 
It's getting a bit sidetracked, but I do really like the First World War. It's a very, very interesting subject. When we're looking at Palestine, Israel area, uh, we are specifically looking at what we call British dodgy dealings, okay? And this was because the British made backhanded deals with different sections, mainly Arabs and Jews, um, to create basically the conflict that we see today. It was all the British fault, okay? There's no denying it. The British made promises that they couldn't keep, okay? And they did it because if they hadn't made these promises, they would have lost the war, okay? The First World War, up until the point that the British started making these dodgy deals, we were going to lose, okay? It didn't look good. Russia had almost capitulated on the Eastern Front, which would have meant that the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the Ottoman Empire would have been able to come and assist Germany on the Western Front and we would have been overrun. Okay, because at the start of the war, let's remember guys, America didn't turn up. America seemed to turn up to wars fashionably late and only when they know they're going to win. Just, just saying. But this is what happens, okay? The British make some dodgy deals and all shit breaks loose for the next hundred years. So we're going to talk about why these deals were made, the importance of these deals, and why the British needed to do it. Okay? So in 1902, Edward VII comes to the throne in England. Uh, he inherits off Queen Victoria possibly one of the greatest empires ever. All right? The British Empire at one point owned 25% of the entire globe. Okay, it's the biggest empire in history. And not only is it the biggest empire in history, it was the longest running empire in history as well. All right, especially for that amount of uh, global uh, population or global control, I suppose. Um, however you want to look at it. Now, he had to keep Britain running through this through the first world war and the only way to keep britain fully mobilized fully armed and with money coming in was through trade and the movement of britain's largest army britain's largest army at this time was the indian army without the indian army britain would not have been able to win the first world war or the second let's be honest um and without control of the Suez Canal, Britain were never ever going to be able to keep troops moving the way they did. Since 1888, Britain had occupied, so 1888, sorry, getting my dates wrong here, since 1882, Britain occupied Egypt. Now, Egypt is the country that runs alongside the Suez Canal from the African side. Modern day Palestine is the country that runs alongside from the Arabian side. Britain had control of, more or less control of the Suez Canal because of Egypt. So for them to have complete control, they needed control of the other side where the Ottoman Empire was. And this is where the dodgy deals come in. All right. Britain, towards the end of 1914, were in a real shit state. All right. And this was because Every country that joined the First World War was told that the war would end by Christmas. So the, the war started in August 1914, alright? And they were told, British troops, German troops, French troops were all told it would be a quick war, 
be over by Christmas. You'll be home by Christmas. Okay? They weren't. We all know they weren't. They didn't end till uh, 1918. So, this war, that was supposed to be a very quick war, was turning out to be very bloody, very costly, and more importantly, a lot of men were losing their lives. And the British were losing control of the war. Okay, They were losing everything. They looked like they were going to be overrun by the Germans. The Germans were conquering. You know, you've got to remember, I've, I've done it in, in certain other episodes, the German trenches were built to last. The British trenches were not. The British trenches were there because the British were trying to push them back. The Germans had already advanced. The Germans were settled in. So it was a much harder war for the British and the French to fight than it was for the Germans to fight because the Germans had dug themselves in nice and deep. And with this, the British had to make, British and French, let's be honest, not the French aren't innocent in this, they had to make certain deals, otherwise they were going to lose the war. So, your British politicians at the time, Prime Minister Asquith, Foreign Secretary Lord Grey, Minister for War Lord Kitchener, and First Lord of the Admiralty Winston Churchill. Okay, yes, that same Winston Churchill that won the Second World War. He was First Lord of the Admiralty. Now, they devised a strategy to undermine the what we know as the Central Powers. Okay, the Central Powers are Germany, Austria-Hungary, and the Ottoman Empire. And that is because, if you look at it on a map, the German, Austro-Hungarian, and Ottoman Empire basically draws a big, thick line straight down the middle of Europe and into... Uh, the Middle East. That's why central powers. Okay, so it makes sense. So the plan was to pick on, essentially pick on the weakest link out of those three powers. And that weakest link was the Ottoman Empire. Now, the Ottoman Empire had a few problems. Okay, in 1908, for example, Turkey, part of the Ottoman Empire, was taken over by Turkish nationalists. Now, this didn't make much of a difference because Sultan Mohammed V was still uh, in charge of the full empire. However, Turkey as a country politically was leaning towards a more Turkish-based identity. So, this didn't split up the Ottoman Empire. What it did was it meant that the Turks in Turkey... Being the way they were with Arabs meant that they sort of looked down upon Arabs. They enforced Turkish rules, Turkish language, um, things like that. But they enforced this onto the Arabs. Okay, Now this meant that any Arabs that were in the Ottoman Empire at the time were feeling a little bit pushed out. Okay, Turkey was the main power of the Ottoman Empire and the Arabs felt like they were being pushed out a little bit because at one point this was a an islamic uh, empire now it was becoming a turkish empire and what this did was it meant that the arabs found their own sense of identity and with that meant they wanted their own state they wanted their own land now britain and france 
decided that they would send peace envoys to certain Arab leaders and say to them, come and join us in the war. And when you win, when we win the war, we will give you your independence. We will give you your own state that you can call home. You can take a chunk of the Ottoman Empire and call it your own. Okay, it doesn't matter what they say, you can have your own land. And a lot of Arabs were like, yeah, we'll, we'll play along with this. This is a good idea. The British and French will help us. We will fight for them and we will get we'll get what we want. You know, they'll get their independence. Wasn't the only deal that the British and French made, though. The British and French made a deal with Russia. Okay, Russia were obviously part of the Allies anyway, but they made a deal with Russia, which was to give them Constantinople. Now, Constantinople is modern-day Istanbul, so if you don't know, that is the capital of Turkey. And the plan was to give Russia control of that, meaning that Russia had its own gateway into the Mediterranean Sea, because Russia doesn't is nowhere near the Mediterranean. So it would give them a leg into the Mediterranean and meant their trade with Western Europe would have been a lot easier. Britain and France offered that to them. Britain wasn't interested in Constantinople. Britain wanted a port in Jordan, which is modern-day Palestine. That meant that Britain could control the Suez Canal. And they also wanted Iraq, modern-day Iraq, which is where all the oil fields are. So that's what Britain wanted. They also made a deal with Italy. Now, this sounds a bit strange because Italy, the start of the First World War, were a pro-German state. They backed the Germans, they backed the Austro-Hungarian empires, um, and they were anti-ally. They didn't, they weren't, they didn't want to be part of Britain and France. However, the Britain and France that we're talking about here offered Italy a big chunk of land in Anatonia. Should they win the war? Italy would take control of Anatonia as part of the Ottoman Empire. And that was enough for Italy to switch sides and to join and declare war on the Central Powers in August 1915. Now, this is very, very interesting because in the Second World War, Italy were obviously, again, pro-German until they were defeated, but they were pro-German. And it... It's very strange because most of you, and very much like me, will not have learnt about this. Okay, When I learnt about the First World War, I learnt about the Western Front. That was it. Only the Western Front. We learnt a tiny little bit about the Eastern Front. We were never ever taught about this, about the attacking the Ottoman Empire. In fact, to be honest, until I did my research, I didn't even know the Ottoman Empire was in the First World War. That's how little... I knew because my research has only ever been Western Front. So this was a bit of an eye-opener this episode. What's very interesting however in regards to the Arabs joining the war is it wasn't the British that made the first move. The first move was actually made by an Arab himself, a man named Sharif Hussein. Sharif Hussein was part of a tribe called the Hashemites. Now for those of you who know a little bit about Islam, being the leader of that tribe means he was a direct descendant 
of Muhammad, their prophet. Now, this means that the Ottoman Empire, which claims to be the Islamic power in the region, which is siding with Germany, means that majority of, of Muslims would join the fight on the side of the Ottoman Empire. However, with Sharif Hussein on the other side, on the side with the allies, it splits the loyalties of of Muslims in the area to that nationalistic basis where if they identified as Arab they fought with Sharif Hussein if they identified as Turk they went and fought with the Ottoman Empire but the Hashemites are very very important to Islam Okay, the leader of the Hashemite tribe is in control of Medina and Mecca which are the two main uh, cities in in the Arab world or in, in the, the Islamic world I'm not going to bore you with the details I don't know a huge amount about Islam but basically with Sharif Hussein and the Hashemites on the British side it almost meant that majority of Muslims in the area who were undecided or or vice versa would have joined the fight on the side of the Allies the only stipulation from Sharif Hussein was that he wanted the British and the French to back him for control of an Arab state if the war was won. The British obviously accepted these terms because they needed the Arabs on side of, to stand any chance of winning this war. What they did though is they sent it back in a letter form and this letter was ambiguous to say the best. Okay. They weren't confirming that they would do what the Arabs wanted, but they were giving them enough belief that they would do at least some of it. Now, historians debate as to whether Sharif Mohammed, uh, sorry, Sharif Hussein knew that this was going to happen. He, a lot of historians say, look, he definitely knew that the British were dodgy, but he knew that it was his only chance of actually standing any sort of hope of getting the Ottomans out some also say you know what it's possible that he didn't actually know the British weren't trustworthy and he went along with it because he actually believed that he would get what he wanted at the end and I don't know which way to, to fall on that but whatever the situation is the British never confirmed or denied that they were going to give Sharif Hussein everything that he wanted. Sharif, Hus Sharif Hussein's sorry, sons, Faisal and Abdullah, were basically in charge of the Arabian army. Faisal was very charismatic, a uh, young leader, very, very good at motivating his troops. And also, he was sort of like the poster boy for Arab independence. But just as these guys were mobilising their troops, there was a meeting going on in London between uh, Mark Sykes and a man named Pico. It was French. Jean... I can't remember his middle name. I'm going to have to Google that and I'll find out. Um, but basically, the Sykes-Pico agreement, this is what we're talking about now. And this meant that they were going to carve up the Ottoman Empire okay 
basically what they were doing was these two guys ignored the promise that they'd made to Sharif Hussein and they were carving up the map to France and Britain regardless of Arab what they promised the Arabs France was to get greater Syria which was the top of the map basically the top of the Middle East Britain like I said were to get Iraq and they were also to get a port called Haifa which this port is in Palestine what, what we now know as Palestine however the area that we know as Palestine was to be left as an international border an international area where anyone could live okay it wasn't Arab it wasn't French it wasn't British it was just left as an international zone and this is where it starts to get a little bit more awkward because all of a sudden you're now creating land where people live and saying that's not your land anymore that's French land or that's British land or that is your land but it's also going to be home to anybody else who wants to live there the regardless to what was going on in London the Arabs carried on with their plan now they attacked the Ottoman Empire at Mecca and they overrun their garrison and they pushed the Ottoman Empire all the way back to the Suez Canal and the Levant where they were met for it with British Imperial troops that had come over the Suez Canal from Egypt and they basically pushed the Ottomans on the on the western side of um, Arabia all the way back to Turkey on the eastern side the British were still pushing the Ottomans back out of Iraq and away from the oil fields that they so desperately wanted the problem is although these successes were going on at the same time there were battles such as the Somme going on on the Western Front basically meaning that the British public were not impressed with the war regardless of the little victories we were getting in in the Middle East was not enough to take away from the defeats we were getting on the Western Front so the British public are important in this because all of a sudden you now have a leadership change in Britain Lloyd George he becomes the new Prime Minister and he wants a fresh look fresh impetus into the, the First World War he can see that we're winning a little bit in the South but we are getting hammered on the Western Front the British public excuse me know that we're getting hammered on the Western Front and he thinks that the only way for Britain to stand any chance of winning this war is to get America involved because America are the country that can make the difference in this war but America have basically turned around and said fuck off we're not interested the fact that majority of Americans at this time were immigrants from either Ireland or Germany Ireland being neutral in the war Germany being the enemy to Britain in the war there wasn't much you know good public opinion of this war they, the, the Americans weren't interested however 
Lloyd George believed that there was one group of people that would be extremely influential in persuading the American politicians to take that step. And he aimed his propaganda or his attacks or however you want to, to word it, his promises, more importantly, at the Jewish population in America, believing that the Jewish population were the ones that could change America. They were the ones that could force the politicians' hands to enter the war. The problem Lloyd George had was that he saw the Jewish public or the Jewish people as one single entity. So he believed that if he could get the Jewish on side, he would be able to get America on side. What he didn't realize, obviously, was that not all Jews agree with certain things. It wasn't like, it's not the same as getting one country to back you in a war. You're talking about many different, uh, re uh, not religions, so many different uh, ethnicities, many different nationalities, many different languages um, across the Jewish communities to join on this one uh, enterprise. And the problem, like I said, you had was the main thing at, at that time was uh, a thing called Zionism. Zionism is um, a Jewish movement which was parallel to the anti-Semitic movement that was sweeping through Europe at the time. Now, Zionism was uh, created by a man named Herzl and he believed, and many Jewish people agreed with him, but he believed that the Jews were not safe in Europe. Basically, he believed that they needed to get out of Europe because of anti-Semitism. And it turns out that he was pretty much right um, when you look at 1945 or 1940s. Um, but anti-Semitism was on a massive rise throughout the 20th century. And Zionism was there to basically to protect the Jews. It, it, there was a Jewish movement to protect Jewish people. That was essentially, there is a lot more to Zionism. I'm just not going to bore you with the details. But um, they believed that they wanted control of their own land. Okay, That was pretty much the, the rule. that, that they, they weren't safe in Europe. And they wanted a state that Jewish people could go to live in peace and be in control of an area that they could call home. You know, like I said, you're looking at the Jewish people as one entity and they wanted one area, okay, to, to live and to call home. Basically, the same as the Arabs wanted. You know, the the difference is obviously the Arabs and the Turks, the same religion, but essentially the Arabs wanted a, a place to call home. They weren't part of the Ottoman Empire they wanted their own land. The Jews were exactly the same. They felt that they were being segregated, marginalized, uh, persecuted in their own countries, and they wanted their own their own area. And many Jews wanted to go back to what their scriptures call the promised land, which is modern day Palestine, it's Jerusalem, uh, or modern day Israel now. But it was that area, okay, Palestine, Israel, Jerusalem was their promised land. 
Now, Jerusalem was still sort of international at this point. Um, roughly 8% of the population uh, in Palestine at this time were Jewish. Um, Jews didn't all leave. They didn't all disappear from, from the Middle East. A lot of them stayed, um, but not, not, not that many. You know, like I said, the, the population of Palestine in 1914 was 8% Jewish. Um, so not very high, but still enough for them to sort of have a little bit of a safe haven. You know, as, as 8% is, is, is substantial. If they could take 8% of the land, there would be potential there for, for more people to live. So it was, it was sort of, that was where they wanted to go. They wanted to go back to the promised land. That was the gist of it. But it was up to the British to make that deal with the Jews in order to get the Americans into the war. The Zionist headquarters was in Berlin. So that gives you a, an idea that these upper echelons of the Jewish community were deeply rooted into the German cause not the British cause so it took a lot of negotiating for the British to actually get them on side and at this point in particular Russia had pretty much lost the first world war so the Russian army was deteriorating very rapidly on the eastern front and there was many protests at home against the war uh, as there were in every country but unfortunately in Russia in particular these protests meant a change of power a change of leadership and the Tsar of Russia was deposed so this basically meant that Britain and France were not going to win this war there was no way they could win it on their own um, without allied help from America um, and like I said with this the, the Americans were still slightly reluctant to get involved in a war that they sort of didn't believe concerned them. One of the main influences in Russia was the Jewish community and what we know as the Bolsheviks. And this caused a problem for Lloyd George, the, uh, the Prime Minister. He was in a situation where he needed to rally the Jewish community because the way he saw it was if the Jewish communists took over in Russia then and pulled the Russian army out of the war then they would be in a situation where there was no hope for the Jewish influence in America to allow the Americans to join the war because why would if you know if, if one country not involved in the war why would a country want to you know want to commit their their troops on the basis of the jewish religion so he came up with a plan and he asked his foreign secretary arthur balfour to come up with an agreement now this was known as the balfour agreement and it states that he would oversee along with his majesty's government the introduction of a Jewish homeland and this Jewish homeland would be in Palestine now this agreement was made should the English and the French win the war then they would carve up the part of Palestine that they deemed as the neutral zone so bearing in mind this was 
a part of a, a country that neither Britain nor France really wanted to take control of. Um, and they said, right, well, if you want it, we'll take a section of Palestine and you can have that. And that can be your own Jewish homeland. And that was the agreement if, you know, if joined the war, if the Jewish contingent in the world backed the allied, the allied forces at war. So the Balfour Declaration was actually issued on November the 2nd, 1917. And it just happened to be at the exact time that the British army were moving into Palestine. So in other words, there was no way the Palestinians could argue because the way they saw it at that period in time, the British were there to stop the Ottoman Empire. The British were on the Palestinian sides and the British now had control of Palestine because the army was there. Now, the main question here is what I'm assuming most people would be wondering listening to this is what gives Britain the right to tell people that's where you can live and that's where you can live well the problem you have is in the early 20th century in the early 1900s britain was still a massive empire we still had um you know the biggest empire in the world we cut a lot of asia was under the british empire australia canada a lot of africa was under the british empire um, we we still had that massive empire that people know and remember, and unfortunately, the mindset of the politicians was that of the empire. In other words, we occupy that land, therefore we own that land. And unfortunately, that was the theory behind Palestine was that they occupied it, and therefore it was theirs to do with what they wanted. Um, obviously now knowing that britain doesn't have an empire anymore we you know we have a handful of islands that uh, claim to be british empire anymore and that is one of the main reasons because britain got very very far ahead of themselves in the sense that they believed they could dictate who lived where um and that causes well as we know quite serious conflicts and the problem with palestine is the British, through the Balfour Declaration, gave parts of Palestine to the Jewish communities. Unfortunately, the British also promised the same land to Sharif Hussein, providing his army helped out as well. And this is where the conflict begins. However, Sharif Hussein and the Arabs did a huge loyalty to the British during the First World War by taking out the uh, the Ottoman Empire. However, the one that won the war was not the Arabs, and the reason we won the First World War was the Americans joining in. Had the Americans not joined in, and with that the backing of the Jewish population, we wouldn't have won that war. So the British leaned more towards helping the Jewish communities out than they did the Arab communities, in which case the declaration actually backed Palestine to become Jewish, but not to affect the non-Jewish people who lived there. So they were very specific by saying, you know, if you are not Jewish and you live in Palestine, 
that you should not be discriminated against, you should not be persecuted. However, Palestine is no longer your homeland, it is now the home for the Jewish community. One of the biggest issues that Britain and France faced at this time was not the pretty much guaranteed conflict that was in Palestine, it was the Russian Revolution where the Bolsheviks Communist Party took over in Russia and these were backed by the Jewish, uh, these were Jewish communists and this is what Lloyd George wanted, this is what the British wanted, they wanted the communists in charge, or not the communists, they wanted the Jewish in charge. They believed that by setting up a Jewish state and by sort of advocating for Zionism that this would mean that basically every Jewish person would rally to the cause of the the Allies. Unfortunately, the Russians, when they got into power, did exactly the opposite. They pulled out of the war, which the British didn't want, and they also said that Zionism was a capitalist idea, not a communist idea, and they did not want anything to do with Zionism and the introduction of a Jewish state. So this hurt the British and the French very, very badly. Not only did it do that, they also published the secret treaty between the French and the English or and the British, which carved up parts of earlier. So these secret agreements had now became public knowledge. So if there was any civil unrest between the Arabs and the Jews, the, the publication of the secret treaty was just going to make it even worse. So as I'm sure you can imagine, Sharif Hussein was not best pleased knowing that his independence was to be split up into zone A and zone B and a little bit for them. He believed that obviously the British were true to their word and that they were still going to back Arab independence. Now, the British reiterated to to the Arabs that no, they would back them, they would, you know, they would support them. They do want the Arabs to have their own homeland. This is just the British trying to support both the Jews and the Arabs. Now, Sharif Hussein took them at their word. Unfortunately, in December uh, 1917, the leader of the Zionist movement, a man called Weizmann, entered Jerusalem. As he did so, he wanted to set up a Jewish uh, university in Jerusalem. Not unexpected, you know, the British had said that Jerusalem and, and Palestine would be would be theirs. Why can't he take his Zionist movement there now and set up already? Problem with doing that is it was pretty much rubbing it in the face of the Arabs that this is what was, what was going to happen. And the British didn't help the situation by having very high-powered government members and uh, members of the Royal Army there to greet them as they came into uh, into Palestine. So this was basically the British showing that they were they weren't interested in what 
the Arabs had to say. They weren't really interested in helping Sharif Hussein. They were pretty much giving a public spectacle of showing that they were here for the Jewish community and they were backing the Jewish community to move into Palestine. We'll just flash forward a few months now. The war's obviously progressing. Um, and towards October 1918 is pretty much the capitulation of the Ottoman Empire. The British and the Arabs have now removed the Turkish from uh, from Palestine and moved them, taken control of Damascus and Faisal, the head of the the Arab army, uh, Sharif Hussein's son, is put in control of, of Syria. Now the British warn him that his position, I suppose, will not last very long. And the reason his position will not last very long is because Syria is to be given to the French. So unfortunately, he cannot keep control of Syria. However, that's not really what he thinks about. He carries on with his progression to, to create a government and then by saying, you know, this isn't actually going to be your homeland. This area is going to be French. He just carries on with, with what he thinks is right. As we know, the following month, the 11th of November uh, 1918, was the end of the First World War. And two months later, uh, January uh, 1919, was possibly one of the most famous treaties that has ever happened anywhere in the world at any point uh, throughout history is the Treaty of Versailles. Now, for those of you who don't know about the Treaty of Versailles, it was, in a nutshell, what the Allies were going to do with the losers, basically, how they were going to carve up the empires that had been lost, the punishments for the losing parties, um, what they would do to Germany uh, after this. Um, a lot of people actually say that the Allies were that harsh on the Germans. A lot of historians will back me up on this. The Allies were that harsh on the Germans at the Treaty of Versailles. This was one of the reasons World War II actually sparked, because the Germans were so bitter about what had actually happened. They uh, they weren't, you know, they, they wanted revenge for it. So, you know, possibly uh, worth doing an episode purely on the Treaty of Versailles, but for now, we're going to focus with the very loose and liberal promises that the British had made to both the Arabs and the Jewish communities and how these promises were actually going to be kept or not kept, as we shall find out. The British and the French at the Treaty of Versailles pretty much thought they had, they had it in the bag. Whatever they wanted to do, they could do. No one was going to tell them yes, no, maybe. No one was going to tell them what to do. What they didn't account for was the fact that President Wilson, Woodrow Wilson, was not the type of man who wanted that. He didn't want the British and the French to just carve up other people's lands. He believed that every country who had been liberated from an empire had the right to either join another empire or 
to be now you've got countries like Austria and Hungary these were part of uh, an empire uh, Turkey was part of Prussia uh, a lot of these countries actually did become independent because of Woodrow Wilson saying well hang on a minute if these guys want to be independent they can be independent unfortunately his roles in the Middle East tended to go by the wayside so as influential as he was in the European agreements uh, he pretty much had no jurisdiction over what was going on in the Arab homeland and on this basis the British handed over power of Syria and Lebanon to the French obviously the British didn't control it at that point but they were occupying it they moved their army out and they fulfilled their agreement to the French by handing over Syria and Lebanon to them unfortunately for the French because Faisal had been in charge of Syria for roughly 16 to 18 months now the Syrian government had made him king he was king of Syria and the French didn't like this obviously this was their land as far as they were concerned they didn't want the Arabs to have it and they sent in the army and they deposed Faisal as king Faisal then fled Syria and he fled to Palestine so I'll just put this out as a little bit of a perspective for you guys just so you can imagine what the this had actually done to the Arabs the Arabs who fought for the Allies in the First World War were guaranteed or told that they would be guaranteed their own independence they would be able to have their land okay now when you look at the Middle East you have countries Lebanon Syria Iraq Palestine and Jordan okay these are the main countries that make up what what we're looking at here this is where the Arabs wanted they wanted that whole land okay now this is massive it's a massive land but they wanted that to be the Arab homeland the British wanted Iraq the French wanted Syria and Lebanon nobody wanted Palestine they were British were giving it away and Jordan was to be a neutral zone now when you look at Jordan itself it is a very small country in comparison to Iraq and Syria and basically what the British did theirs and not only could they not have a land that was just theirs the land that possibly could have been was split up into different countries and into different areas so you can understand to an extent where this sort of dislike of the West comes from when they've been promised certain things that were pretty much just completely lied to now the British control of Iraq was not very easy the British actually had to put uh, Faisal in charge as king of Iraq uh, if they hadn't done that they would have had a very very difficult time keeping control of it unfortunately this was still under British control so although he was king he was sort of like a, a puppet king and basically meaning that his left was uh, was Palestine but obviously Palestine had been promised to the Jews now the problem you have in this instance is there are 
two factions. You've got the native Arabs and you've got the Jews that are both being promised this land. Okay, The Arabs had a better claim to Palestine in the 1920s than the Jewish did. Unfortunately, they weren't very good at advocating it. Uh, the Jewish population, uh, the Zionist movement, had a still a, a decent claim. You know, you've got to remember this wasn't like they just moved in. They they had been promised this land. This land had pretty much been written down in a declaration that it was theirs. The previous owner of the land was the the British Empire. You know, the as far as old imperialism goes, Britain has the right to give out their land to anybody. Um, rightly or wrongly so it's not like the Jewish people had zero claim to this land unfortunately for the Arabs the Jewish had a very very good adversary in Weizmann um, they were very good at publicizing that it was their land they were very good at um, what they needed to basically they, they turned that area of the Middle East into a homeland and they did it themselves so you have two two factions that ha that's what we see with with Israel now is this Israel Palestine is the fact that when uh when the Jewish population moved in they were they were very good at it you know they they really took to the area they made it their own um and they you know they did have the backing of the British which which does make a huge difference you know at the end of the day <clears throat> they wouldn't have been able to even attempt that had they not had the backing of the British. Um, um, the the argument that I can see in regards to Palestine in particular is the British never actually said to the Arabs which land they could have. Okay, All they said to the, the Arab people was, you can have independence. We will back you to have independence and you can have it what they said to the zionist movement to the jewish people was you can have your own land and it's going to be this land this is the land that you can have so there is a distinct difference when we look at it in that aspect the british and french are the problem here they the jewish community the christian community and the muslim community or the islamic community lived peacefully happily side by side in places like tel aviv and jerusalem there was never that much conflict now obviously there will be some conflict with it being different religions but and unfortunately like the british tend to do with many many things is we go in we cause a problem and then we leave and go that's not our problem anymore that's your problem and that's kind of what that happened with this the british created a problem and then left and went that's not our problem now that's your problem you can deal with it um obviously you're talking a hundred years ago now things have moved on israel is a very prosperous country um very very some one of the best countries in the world um, in in regards to technology, um, armaments, uh, weapons, uh, 
just general things you know their healthcare is is unbelievable they have some of the best doctors in the world best physicians uh, things like that so obviously for a country like that to have only started 100 years ago to now be one of the most powerful countries in the world both financially and economically um it screams you know they obviously they're doing something right over there um unfortunately there is that constant shadow hanging over over the middle east of the israel palestine conflict which unfortunately like i said the british are responsible for so um i'm going to apologize for this episode um obviously now we're at the end uh, that it has taken so long to get out to you guys um um, injuries uh, things like that have uh, had a few problems for those of you who are on my facebook um my personal facebook you will know uh, what i've been going through the last few weeks so it has been extremely difficult to even attempt to get an episode have this problem going forward so again i do apologize this episode is coming so late um we will be getting i'm going to do my best now to get uh get a couple of episodes out in next week uh not just one just so we can uh you know give you guys something to listen to because i'm sure you've missed me so much and it's been about four weeks now since you've heard my lovely voice so um let me know what you thought of this episode was trying very very hard not to put any personal opinions in on this um for those of you who have listened to my previous episodes um you will know uh what religion my my best mate is um and been brought up pretty much i spent more time at their house than i did my own house uh me personally will know where my opinion probably lies with this um however uh, I hope I've managed to keep that out. And yeah, let me know any feedback. Um, I, I really do want some feedback from you guys. Um, obviously, I get my sort of four or five regular uh, listeners who, who give me feedback and maybe another four or five who uh, I've known for many, many years, sort of friends, old friends and family who, who give me feedback. But for those of you guys who have never given me feedback never gone onto itunes and put down a review or never messaged on facebook or joined the group or anything like that um message me you know send me a message you'll find me on the group um if you are a bit shy go on twihpod at gmail.com you can email me so i don't have to know what your facebook name is or anything like that. i know some people are a bit funny about that um but yeah you know send me some feedback and if i can get every single one of you guys who listens to this episode to share this to or not even just this episode but share your favorite episode with one more person so we get roughly around 1500 to 2000 listeners a week uh, which is amazing you know i absolutely love that i get that many um, and there is potential that it's more because a lot of the time um, podcasts actually don't register them all properly. So there is potential that it is more than that. But I would, you know, I've been going a year and a half now. Um, we've been on around this this number for about about a year. So we've had the same amount of listeners for about a year, which is fantastic. But I want to see it go up, and I'm sure you all agree. You, you know, we you come back every week and listen to me, so I'm sure you you guys are enjoying it as well. So, 
if there is your favourite episode, whatever your favourite episode is, get the PDF of oh, the PDF, get the MP3 of it, and send it to someone. Send the link to someone. Find out what one it is. Whether it's whether it's this one, whether it's uh, Blackbeard, whether it's uh, uh, Auschwitz. We've done. We've done uh, the Edmund Fitzgerald. We've done Gettysburg. Some of the the red barrel sells over to patreon.com forward slash this week in history and you will get every episode ad free. At the moment I've uploaded about half of them, so I am still currently doing it. It does take a long time to upload the episodes to Patreon. Um but get yourselves over there and every single episode will be ad free and you will also get the advantage of the extra shows that come out on there as well. Thank you for listening, guys, and remember we all have history, so make yours great. Bye bye. In the heat of the moment, you're not just keeping it calm, you're keeping it cool, too. With an ice-cold cold brew, and not just any cold brew, but one that's slow-steeped and mixed with brown sugar and molasses flavor. With a cold foam infused with brown sugar coolness and a cinnamon sugar sprinkle on top. That's keeping it calm, cool, and cold brewed. With Dunkin's new brown sugar cream cold brew, America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. Terms apply. Finding the right person for the job isn't easy. Just ask someone who hired a stuntman to do their home renovations. Just finished the new sunroom, Mrs. C. The best part is I used candy glass for all the windows. So you can do this. And this. Doesn't hurt a bit either. But if you've got an insurance question, you can always count on your local GEICO agent. They can bundle your policies, which could save you hundreds. And if you don't want to take the long way to the kitchen, the walls are breakaway too. See? For expert help with all your insurance needs, visit geico.com slash local today. In the heat of the moment, you're not just keeping it calm, you're keeping it cool too. With an ice cold cold brew, and not just any cold brew, but one that's slow steeped and mixed with brown sugar and molasses flavor. With a cold foam infused with brown sugar coolness and a cinnamon sugar sprinkle on top. That's keeping it calm, cool, and cold brewed. With Dunkin's new brown sugar cream cold brew, America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. Terms apply. In the heat of the moment, you're not just keeping it calm. You're keeping it cool, too. With an ice-cold cold brew. And not just any cold brew, but one that's slow-steeped and mixed with brown sugar and molasses flavor. With a cold foam infused with brown sugar coolness and a cinnamon sugar sprinkle on top. That's keeping it calm, cool, and cold brewed. With Dunkin's new brown sugar cream cold brew, America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. Terms apply. In the heat of the moment, you're not just keeping it calm. You're keeping it cool, too. With an ice-cold cold brew. And not just any cold brew, but one that's slow-steeped and mixed with brown sugar and molasses flavor. With a cold foam infused with brown sugar coolness and a cinnamon sugar sprinkle on top. That's keeping it calm, cool, and cold brewed. With Dunkin's new brown sugar cream cold brew, America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. Terms apply.